When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, Katie Morton, licensed marriage and family therapist. Today, I think we have nine questions. Yes, we have nine. And if you're new here, welcome. We discuss all things mental health. There's no question off limits, nothing that you should ever think is too anything, too difficult, too complicated, too weird, too anything. We always just talk about the things that are important, things we're going through, things we're working on, what we think about our therapists and that process, anything you could possibly think about related to mental health. I'm here to answer your questions. And if you didn't know, we have switched over so that once a month we will do a catered uh, podcast, meaning it'll be like a specific topic like ADHD or OCD or depression or whatever. And then the other three Thursdays or three podcasts during the month will be like today's where it's just a uh, random questions and topics just depending on what you all thumbs up. So again, if you're new, over in the community tab on the YouTube channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can go to the homepage of youtube.com forward slash opinions that don't matter. That's the name of the podcast I do with my husband, Sean. You hit the community tab and under there, you'll see that on Sundays, I ask you for your questions and you hit the comments and in there, if there's a question that's similar to yours, you can give it a thumbs up. And the one that gets the most thumbs ups, you know, will definitely be in the podcast. And I just kind of work my way down. I think the one number one here had like 50 something thumbs ups. And then I just worked my way down and the last two were just randomly selected. So they have nothing to do with the thumbs up so that everybody gets an opportunity to get their questions answered. But without further ado, let's jump into those questions. Now, question number one says, hello, Katie. Hello. Why is it that I've always felt that there was something wrong with me? I've never sustained any big trauma, but from as young as 12, I felt misunderstood and looked for um, oh, and looked for a diagnosis that might fit my experience, like social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, ADHD, and autism, to name some. I've always been oversensitive, had a low tolerance for stress, a low self-esteem, and been the type to get easily obsessed and easily overwhelmed. Recently, as well as in the past, I've had what I think are depressive episodes. But despite this, whenever I try to search for answers, I never quite fit the diagnostic criteria and end up feeling un invalidated and overdramatic. It's like a cycle of gaslighting myself into thinking nothing's wrong with me until I explode. It's only now that I've started having suicidal thoughts, self-harming and restricting in the last few months that I finally resolved to, see to get help. Yet I still fear, fear that I'm not sick enough to get diagnosed with anything. Why do I seek external validation for my sickness? And why can't I trust my brain? All great questions. And I just want everybody out there to know that it's very common for us not to meet full criteria. I know I talk a ton about the the symptoms and, you know, we like, let's say depression. We're like, we don't enjoy the things we used to. We feel sad most days. We have changes in our appetite. And this lasts for at least two weeks, right? I go through that because that's how 
I was trained, but that's not actually what experience tells us. Experience tells us that everyone is different. Each person is unique in their own symptoms and how they feel them. Just because the DSM states it, you know, in a certain way doesn't mean that we can't feel it differently. And I know that this is, maybe you won't be able to hear this or actually absorb this, but it doesn't really matter if we're diagnosed or not. The reason diagnoses exist, it's kind of two-pronged. Number one is for insurances. Like if in the States we have, you know, private insurance or in other countries they have private insurance as well too. And sometimes there are different coverages, meaning like they'll cover different types of diagnoses. They call them somewhere like parity diagnosis, and we're not going to get into those terms, but certain diagnoses are covered for longer or they'll cover inpatient for an eating disorder when you meet the criteria, right? It's all for coverage. The second prong, the second reason there are diagnoses is so that as a clinician, I kind of have a place to start so that misdiagnoses go down, meaning that, you know, we don't give patients improper treatment, whether that's medication, therapy, et cetera. And so it's really, I see diagnosing someone as just the, the beginning. It's just, where we're going to start, things that we think are affecting us. And like, especially when I first start seeing someone, I'll have a lot of different diagnoses that I think could fit. I could think it might be anxiety, might be depression. Uh, I'm curious if, you know, there's a little ADHD in there, right? There could be a lot that I'm working to rule out or rule in. Um, and so anyway, I, I just wanted to say that. I know that again, might not be able to hear or digest that, but diagnosing or getting a diagnosis really isn't the end all be all. It's just a place to start and it ensures that we get proper care. So it is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but your experience is more important than getting this certain diagnosis. Okay. Now the person's question, why do I seek external validation for my sickness? I talked about this um, when I talked about self-diagnosing. I have a whole video about self-diagnosis and my thoughts about it. And the truth is that when we get a name to put to something we've been experiencing, let's say forever, I've just thought I'm, I'm really weird and I don't know, I get super bored and it's hard for me to concentrate, but then certain things I just love and I can really focus in on them, right? And then when I'm told you have ADHD and here are some tools to work with, not against your brain, it's like, it can be life changing. Not only do I feel validated, oh, I'm not just a weirdo or, oh, I'm not just lazy, or stupid or whatever negative self-talk I've told myself. Instead, I'm like, oh, my brain just works differently. And so I have to work with it, not against it. So it's it's validating. It can be self-affirming and kind of combat some of those negative thoughts or self-talk that we've that I've had or we've had. And finally, it can also give me some tools, right? Then I can like figure out how to best work with it so that I'm not fighting against myself all the time. Um, one of the keys to therapy, and I, I talked about this in my book, Traumatizes, or in Are You Okay, I think, and also possibly in Traumatized, but one of the reasons therapy is so healing is we get language or terms to put to how we feel. And that can be, it's not just validating, but it can be empowering, right? I'm not just losing my mind. I'm not just just always sad, or there's not like this thing that's wrong with me, right? It's, oh, I have depression, or oh, I struggle with ADHD or OCD. And, and having that term to put to it can not only give us information so we can do more research and learn about it and stuff, but it's it just gives us a, a, a proper term to put to it instead of all those judgmental ones that we've been giving ourselves probably since we remember, right? And so 
that's part of what can be really helpful in healing with therapy. And, you know, we can even take it as deep as saying like therapy offers you, you know, words to put to how you feel like feelings, right? It's not just, oh, I'm, I'm just not energized. And I just always feel sad. It's like, no, I, I feel really disappointed and I'm grieving, right? Some of that can be healing. Language can be incredibly healing. Okay. Now I want to make sure I'm answering this without getting off on too much of a tangent. So seeking external validation for your sickness is very normal. And we do it because we want someone else to recognize how we feel and what's going on and tell us, yeah, it's bad. And I know that can sound like even just saying that you're like, but why? Because we're not giving it to ourselves. We always look outward for things that we aren't giving to ourselves. And therapy can help us switch that around because ideally we'd be validating our own experience, but we all know how hard that is and how much practice and how, I don't know, how much work that takes, right? Because there's, even I have days where I just shit talk myself and I'm like, you're just overreacting, Kate, you're being too sensitive, blah, 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 right? I can talk to myself like that too. But ideally, that would be minimal. And most of the time we would say, you know what? I'm just not feeling up to it today. And that's okay. You know, it's okay. Sometimes I struggle with symptoms of depression. I accept that, right? And that's the internal validation. But until we get there, it's very common to look externally for that. Um, And also, even just in the question, I can tell that you're like shit talking yourself. Like I'm easily obsessed and easily overwhelmed. There's so much judgment there versus saying like, that's just how I feel. I I feel overwhelmed a lot. and, And I feel, you know, maybe I feel very sensitive to the to life around me and the experiences that I have. That's not a bad thing. Okay. Um, And why can't I trust my brain? Often we can, like the person who's writing this says, you know, never sustained any big trauma. We're forgetting about little T's. Little T's are just as impactful. The person who asked this question said, I've never sustained any big trauma. And we're forgetting about the little T's. Little T's are just as harmful as big T's. I even wish I had never talked about them as big and little um, because that kind of makes it feel like some are more, I don't know, more worthy of help than others, right? Some are like worse than others or better than others um, when all trauma is not good and all trauma affects us. And so we can have a lot of little T traumas, like moving a lot, um, going through a divorce, whether we're the child or whether we're the parent going through it, getting bullied at school, um, having financial strife, losing a job, uh, you know, any number of things, going through a bad breakup. There can be a lot of trauma in our life. And those traumas are not less so just because there wasn't one big one. Like I wasn't in a car accident or, or sexually abused by, you know, someone in my family for many years. Those little traumas can, can harm us or affect us just the same. And so my hypothesis for the person who asked this question is I think you have a lot of little T trauma that has built up to you having a PTSD response because that something's wrong with me feeling is what otherwise is known as shame. And shame comes along with trauma. They're like best buds. It's horrible. And shame can tell us that we're just broken, that we um, something's wrong with us, and that's why bad things keep happening, that we've done something to cause chaos or bad things in our life, like taking ownership over things that aren't your fault. Like you even saying that you're easily overwhelmed and easily obsessed. It's like you're already judging yourself. You're like, the shame. I'm too sensitive. I can't handle this. Something's wrong with me inside that's causing all this to happen overly dramatic, right? All of that is is definitely built on that shame, uh, that shame belief that something's wrong with you. And that, that usually is born out of trauma. Now, also, if we had been, 
you know, trauma looks and a lot like looks very differently compa- uh, depending on how we were abused or how the trauma happened. But for a lot of people, there's like covert abuse, more like narcissistic abuse, which can be overt, meaning, you know, if you see it, it's outward or covert, more things like emotional abuse and neglect, almost like the it's not that something was added to our life. It's that something was taken away. And often when something isn't happening, it's harder and harder for us to validate our PTSD-like response and the abuse we sustained. And then we can come into this like shame spiral, gaslight ourselves and tell ourselves it's not that big of a deal. We're too overreacting. Um, so I think that, I don't know what happened, you know, you'd have to let me know more about your life and what you've gone through. But I think a lot of that is why you feel like you can't trust your brain. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, there was a comment on this that says, yes, why do I feel like there's something fundamentally wrong, but yet can't find the answers? It's so frustrating. It's a cycle of obsessing over a diagnosis that I think could, quote unquote, be the answer, and then just realizing that they're not and feeling wrong all over again. Uh, the, I mean, I kind of feel like I answered this question because it, feeling like there's something fundamentally wrong, but you can't find the answers. It's because you aren't able to see it. You're looking through judgmental glasses. You know what I mean? We talk about looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, like everything looks better around us, right? Everything's good. Ooh, we're biased on the good side. When we've been traumatized, big T, little T, when we have any mental illness, it can put our, make our vision askew, meaning just off. And we're looking through judgmental lenses of our life and our experience and our judgments on ourselves, And all of that almost, I don't know, do you remember those things you used to look through as a kid? It was like, I forget what they're called, but you'd twist them and it like fragments what you're seeing. It makes the colors like scatter. It's almost like that where we just can't see our experiences in our life clearly. And I'm sure tons of you are screaming right now what the name of that thing is, but I can't remember. So sorry. Um, But I think that that's why is because we can't see the world in a clear, non-judgmental fashion. All we know is to judge ourselves probably comes from one of our caregivers doing that very same thing. So instead of just validating that we're having a tough time, we're not feeling good and and you know, working with a therapist to put language to it, not doesn't mean a diagnosis, but even just language to say like, oh, what, what that is, is an anxiety symptom or what you're experiencing here is, is a bout of depression or grief or whatever. Um, you know, having that can be really validating and really healing, but because we've always been told that we're too sensitive or that we're not good enough or lovable or something's wrong with us, then we start to believe that. And then we're not going to be able to find any answers because maybe our symptoms don't fall into these exact diagnostic criteria, it like falls across like three different diagnoses. That's very possible. Um, but yeah, I, I have a feeling there's some kind of abuse in there too. Uh, most likely emotional abuse. I feel like shame and emotion, shame comes along with any abuse, but I feel like with emotional abuse, it's like sneaky because we don't realize maybe we've even been abused. We can like negate the fact that, th- that things were bad that even happened to us. Um, and so we just think it's all about us and something's wrong with us and we can just go around and run around. I hope that makes sense again. Okay, let's move on to question number two. Now, this question says, hi, Katie. There have been questions in the past about things like wanting to be sicker for a therapist to not lose them. And I think you've said it's attachment-based. It definitely can be. I always relate to the action in these scenarios, but not the reason. What if someone has these actions, but has nothing to do with keeping the person around, but rather just general care? I have always, and there are examples going back to when I was five or six years old, 
had this urge or tendency to exaggerate or even tell complete lies to people, usually adults, coaches, teachers, managers, so that they would worry or care about me. This is interesting. I'm too ashamed to even admit examples, but it's still, is it still attachment based if the person doesn't really matter? Yes, but we'll get into that. I don't really care if I lose them. In fact, I'm kind of relieved if I do, because then I don't have to maintain the lie. So I don't think it's about a fear of abandonment or anything like that. Attachment isn't always fear of abandonment. Well, I do care about losing them, but I think only because of the kindness they provided. There's your key. It's like I'm just desperate for any attention. Mm -hmm. I feel sick and repulsive even thinking about this. What is this and what is caused? What is it caused by? And am I a terrible person? No, you're not a terrible person. We as humans need attention. I'm actually working on a video right now about some of these words that we've like given bad connotations to like attention and um, being sensitive, right? There's a lot of words that we we give this negative judgment to when there's nothing negative about it, right? Needing attention is a human need. Think of being a baby. You cry for attention. You scream for attention. We make noise. We roll around because we can't care for ourselves. The only other way that we can get our needs met is through getting attention from our caregiver, That's why from childhood, we're like primed for attachment and connection. We make eye contact with someone when they're feeding us a bottle and it's soothing to our system. Our nervous system actually calms down. And also they find that with mothers, that connection with their child too helps them soothe because we all know, I mean, I don't have children, so I'm not pretending to know this, but I am aware having a child is a lot of fucking work and getting up in the middle of the night and feeding them is exhausting. And sometimes you want to throw yourself or your baby out the window because it's just too much. So that connection keeps us sane. It keeps, that's why babies are so cute. It's so that we keep them alive and we do all the hard work that it entails. And that connection is normal and needing attention is just part of being human. I know it'd be easier if it wasn't, but unfortunately that's just not how we're wired. And when I say wired, I mean through our nervous system, like look up vagus nerve stimulation or the vagal uh, polyvagal theory. Those are all ways you can dig into that science if you want to. Now, okay attachment doesn't always mean fear of abandonment. Think of, I have a video about the four attachment styles and maybe it needs a reboot. I don't know how many years old it is, but when we talk about attachment, there's secure attachment. That's obviously not what we're addressing here, but secure attachment just means we feel like we have a safe foundation with which we can like go out into the world. I don't know, experience things and know that we have that foundation, that safe, secure place to come back to. When we are in abusive situations or other things, we can develop different types of attachment. Some having more of like a anxious type attachment. Usually this happens when we can't really trust our caregiver, right? We're like, are they going to be friendly? Are they going to be abusive today? Are they going to be helpful for us or not? Right? We can kind of, ooh, we don't know. It's like double dutch, can't get in. We can be very ambivalent. We can be like, I don't even really care. Sometimes we're soothed with our parents. Sometimes we're upset. And we can be like disorganized. We can feel very chaotic and be really erratic. There's a lot of different kind of ways we can experience attachment. Now, obviously, there's like four main styles, but I feel like everybody's unique and you can kind of pull from different ones um, when we're struggling. And what I see here is what I would call anxious attachment. Now, I'm forgetting. I think they call it anxious. And there's also avoidant, but um, let me see. I want to make sure I'm not messing this up. Um, But the four attachment styles are secure, anxious, ambivalent, disorganized, and avoidant. Okay. So um, this is kind of that, I would say, like the anxious, ambivalent, or possibly disorganized. And you can look up or watch my video about that type of attachment. But it seems like 
what you it's not about you being worried they're going to go away it's just that you want to feel cared for you want to feel like someone actually gives you attention and cares for you now that's why the lies happen because we feel again going back to like uh, the root of these reasons and core issues is something to do with your upbringing there's some deeply held belief, a false belief, totally fake, not true at all, but we believe it. There's a belief that you aren't lovable or enough just as you are. And so that's why the line, right? If I make things out to be worse than they are, then I am worthy of their attention and care. But on my own, it's not enough, right? And that's probably due to your parents not being around or not being accessible, either physically or emotionally or both. Um, And I think I think that's why you're searching. And if you think about the people that you you do this to, right? Going back to when you're five or six, it's like adults, coaches, teachers, managers, it's older people in your life. It's it's who you would place in that caregiver role, but maybe with with realizing it or without realizing it. And so we're gonna do things to keep them around because whether we wanna admit it or not, each and every human on this earth needs attention and needs care. And we will do things, whatever we can in our power to get that need met. And that's what you're doing. And I know it sounds like, you know, you're like, I don't know if it's attachment based. It is attachment based, but attachment isn't only fear of abandonment. Attachment can be like, look up and maybe watch my video or look up, you know, the four types of attachment and look up the, you know, anxious and avoidant and see what comes up um, and see if it relates to your disorganized. Maybe, you know, you only you would know your experience and you could be like, that's me. Um, I hope that helps. Okay. There's a comment on this. So I also imagine sometimes that I do something really bad to myself, like self-injury. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Self-injury. And then someone helps or rescues me. I think, yeah. Okay. Like a caregiver or anyone. Weirdly, I always imagine someone male. I am a female and I have had sexual abuse happen to me by a male, but there's no one specific. I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels like this. And Katie, could it be because I crave deep connection or because I never have been cared for? Yes. That's where this is coming from. And it's interesting that you uh, were sexually abused by a male and you always imagine a male coming to your rescue. And I think it's because the male in your life, probably whoever your abuser was, was supposed to offer love and care and instead abused you. And so we have that hole, right? I talk about like holes in ourselves. Like if our mother wasn't loving or around in the way she should be. We have like a mom-shaped hole in our our body, in our soul. And, and in this case, you have a male hole where you're like, I there was supposed to be a man in my life that looked and felt this way and I didn't get any of that. Instead, I got abused. And so I really wish a man would have been around to protect me and come to my rescue and those types of things. And so I believe that not have not feeling like you were ever really cared for by a male figure has led to you, you know, wanting or hoping that a man would come to your rescue and do the things that, you know, your father, uncle, whoever should have done, the person who's supposed to care for you should have done. And it's very normal, right? We we act out and have dreams and, and think of all these different ways in which things could have been different. That's just part of our brain, right? We're trying to almost like solve the puzzle or fix the problem. Um, and so bring that up in therapy and, and talk to your therapist about it because a lot, some inner child work and just noticing the way you talk to yourself about this and, and paying attention to your urges, all that can be really helpful and you can work to heal and it will get better. Okay. 
Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, have you ever been subpoenaed to testify about a patient? If not, can you tell us what the experience might be like for a therapist? What could cause a therapist to be subpoenaed? Do the rules of confidentiality change in the courtroom if the patient is over 18? Are you allowed to still be working with the patient when this happens? These are all great questions. Now, I would assume states and countries' laws are going to be different. If you guys don't know, I am licensed in the state of California. Yes, I'm going to get my license in Texas. I frankly have just been lazy on the paperwork, but I have not, knock on wood, I have not been subpoenaed to testify about a patient. But what the experience is like is usually get a court order um, because I, I don't know exactly, I'd have to reread through my law and ethics, but I cannot show up. Like there are certain things as a therapist I can say, like, you know, I hold my patient's confidentiality and there are, so let me try to explain as best as I can. You as the patient hold your own confidence, meaning that you have the confidentiality and it's up to you to release it. Now, if you, let's say the most common that I've heard from other colleagues of mine is like divorce cases and one member, let's say the wife, says, oh, the husband, you know, he's psychotic and he's a danger to our children and I want full custody. And if he wants to fight back, let's say I'm his therapist and I know he's not psychotic. He, you know, is dealing with this divorce and it's caused him to be depressed. Um, He can say, Katie, I want to sign a release. I want you to go in and testify on my behalf about my mental state. And by putting that, so then by saying, yes, I'm going to put my mental state into this, this court case, I'm allowing my therapist to represent me and to be questioned. You, get, I, I would be questioned not only by you know his side, but also the, the ex-wife's side. And he would be waiving his confidence. He'd be signing, saying it was okay for me to do that. So that's one way that it can happen. And that's if someone puts their mental health or their mental illness or mental state like up for debate in court, then the therapist can get pulled in because the person who held the confidence has said, we can talk about this. Does that make sense? Then you can get um, a court order forcing the testimony of a therapist, but it can be very limited. And I can protect my patient's confidentiality as much as possible. I can even talk to them ahead of time and say, what do you want me to say? And not saying that they're going to ask about this. What am I, you know, what do you want me to share? And it's not that I'm lying. This is like limits to what I'm going to say. So let's say I had a patient who had a psychotic episode one time and they've been stabilized on medication and I go into court and they're like, is your patient psychotic? And I could say, no, my patient is not currently uh, dealing with any kind of psychosis. And that would be true, right? They're stabilized on medication. Did they ask, have they ever had a psychotic episode in their life? No, you know, and so there can be things that, uh, you know, it's very, it's limited. It's like not a good thing for a therapist to get pulled in. And yes, you can still work with the patient when this happens before and after. Um, But yeah, and the rules of confidentiality don't change in the courtroom. Other, Well, they kind of do. It's almost like you've waived your rights as the patient. And so as much as, I mean, a therapist isn't going to lie on the stand for you, but they'll they'll protect you as much as they can within the, how the questions are asked, but that's about all we can do. And so it's not ideal for anybody. I don't think like even in the uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard case, like him having a psychiatrist, I think it was a psychiatrist, um, talk and be on the stand. It's not a, it's not ideal. I don't think, but you know, in this case, you can see it. You can see why people would do it. 
because they're like, you're making me out to be something I'm not. Here's a professional I've been seeing for many years who can talk to you about X, Y, or Z. Um, I think they've been very stigmatizing, by the way, but we won't get into that. Um, so that's kind of the process. Um, and if a patient is not over 18, because some of you are probably like, well, what if you're a kid? Unfortunately, when you're a child, you can talk with your therapist, but because you're not an adult, your parents can waive confidentiality for you. But in there are different, like I used to work uh, with the CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates. It was the philanthropy, the it was who we donated money to. I was part of, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Kappa Alpha Theta, I was part of a sorority. And that was what we've raised funds for and worked with. Now, Court Appointed Special Advocates come in to court to help children. So when you're under 18, they can be there to look out for the the best interest of the child. Because often, especially in divorce cases, the parents are just like mad at each other and children get caught in between. And so CASA's there to make sure that, you know, their rights don't get trampled on just because their parents are assholes. Okay. I hope that makes sense. If you have follow-up questions, I'm happy to dig into my law and ethics booklet and like go through the law. Because I know some things, you know, shift over time, but very minimally. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's the same you know, throughout the United States and probably in other countries. But yeah, happy to talk about it more. Let's move on to question number four. This says, hi, Katie, how do you begin to get over anxiety and hypervigilance after living in an abusive home for pretty much your whole life? I am now living alone in the same apartment that I spent a large part of my life in. And I don't even know how to exist in the space after everyone has moved out. I spent most of my life stuck alone in my room to avoid the abuse. But even now that I have the apartment to myself, I feel on edge and jumpy all the time when I leave my room. I can't figure out how to feel comfortable and safe here or settle into a routine, often finding myself zoned out or practicing my hobbies at 3 a.m. without realizing the time. Thank you for everything you do. Of course. Now, are you seeing a trauma therapist? Because almost without realizing it, you're doing some kind of like prolonged exposure by living in that apartment. If you're able to leave that apartment, I know financially and there's housing shortages and rents are crazy. So you might not be able to, but if you're able to, I would do that because being in that same place, incredibly triggering, but it's also incredibly helpful because if you, I don't know if your therapist would come over to your apartment. Some therapists will, some won't. I think it could be really healing and helpful, but we could, okay, you could do some exposure type therapy in that apartment based on the fact that you live there your whole life and a lot of the abuse happened there. Now, there's a couple of things just for today that can maybe make you feel better is to rearrange furniture. I know that sounds silly, but having the environment look and feel different is going to be incredibly helpful and healing. So, And also, if there's like a piece of furniture that abuse occurred on, get rid of that. You don't need it. I'd rather you sit on the floor than on like a couch that reminds you of something like that. Ugh, right? Get it out of your house. Um, and move things around so that it just feels different. Put the TV on a different wall or move things around in your bedroom or whatever. You know, do some things that you can to make it feel different. And then I want you to spend some time journaling about all the ways this is different. And this is going to be tricky because you're just like in the apartment, but maybe take your time leaving your room. I know that sounds weird. I know you live there by yourself, but in your brain and your body, right? Body keeps the score. In your body, it says, when I leave this room, I en encounter abuse. And it still believes that because that happened over and over and over and over. And what we have to do is slowly expose ourselves to that out outside of the bedroom space calm our system down and prove to our bodies and our brains that once we leave our room, we aren't going to be abused. And so 
I guess along with um, rearranging and getting rid of some shit that is just triggering for, you know, it's not helpful. I want you to come up with some ways to soothe your system. Now I have a whole video, 25 coping skills. You can look at the process-based and distraction-based ones, but full body shakes work, cold showers, changing your temperature, like holding onto ice or putting a cold rag around your neck or splashing water in your face if you can't, or if you've already showered, you know, those are some things you can do. Um, even just doing some deep breathing or some visualizations can help. Um, try some things, see what calms your system down, and then slowly start doing things more slowly in your apartment. And then even having a mantra, like if you come in the front door, lock the door and you stand in the front door and you're like, this is my home now. I live here by myself. No one here is going to hurt me. I live here by myself. You know, some something you can say to kind of <sighs> calm your system down because you're so cued up because of the PTSD that this, that, you know, you're hypervigilant. You're extremely, un- it's probably exhausting also, by the way, and you're dissociating a lot because of that because your brain's overwhelmed, your nervous system pulls the ripcord on reality. It's like, wow, this is too much, even though technically it's not, but our brain and body don't know any different, right? We've been in this house forever. Bad things happened here. How is it any different? And so we have to slowly prove to our brain and body that it is different. And so, you know, even journaling about the differences, how it feels different, what's different, um, that can be helpful. And then moving the furniture, things like that. But please talk to a therapist and work with someone to help kind of find a way to calm your system down. And medication might also help just to kind of take the edge off for a while um, so that you can, you know, not feel as cued up, as hypervigilant. But it slowly but surely, as we expose ourselves to this triggering place, it will get better. Because each and every time, the good news is each and every time you're able to go into your apartment and not dissociate or not have a flashback or not totally check out means you're that much closer to it stopping altogether. And so each and every time you have a, a neutral experience is, is, is a good thing. One step closer to healing. Okay. Now let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, I've been lying to my therapist and I don't know what to do. We always get lied to. Don't worry. Background info. I lied when I brought up the possibility of me having uh, BPD or borderline personality disorder. I said it was a new thought in my mind, but in reality, I've been self-diagnosing for years and have always noticed these patterns. We decided that I have symptoms, but that I don't seem borderline enough. And I, it can't, and I can't help but feel like if I was honest, she would be keeping more of an eye on it and taking it more into consideration. I've also been lying in my diary cards saying that I haven't been using self-harm when I definitely have. Help. I don't even know why I self-harm. Um, so when I'm honest and she asks why I self-harm that day, I just say, I forgot. In reality, I will just see my tool and do it. My therapist has been trying to get me to get rid of the tools, but obviously I don't want to. I hate lying to her so much and I know that I should tell her, but it all just seems so embarrassing and I don't know how. Now I'm stuck lying to her and telling her that I'm doing well because if I'm honest, she'll ask what happened and I don't even know what happened. Thank you, dissociation, right? So I guess my question is, is really what to do about this. There are so many things that I don't tell her and I know it's affecting the therapy process, but I can't get myself to just tell her because what if she doesn't believe me or take me seriously? I'm sorry, this is kind of all over the place and indirect. I hope you get what I'm saying. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Great question. Now, therapists get lied to each and every day. I feel like every day I go to the office, someone lies about something. Could be lying about feeling better or worse than they're doing, about eating more or less than they say they're eating. Um, having relationships go well when in reality there's not connected to them at all. Or, you know, there's a, I get lied to all the time. 
I'm not offended. It's, I don't, t- we don't take it personally. It's kind of just part of being a therapist. And so what I would encourage you to do, since it seems like if we try to speak it out loud, we shut down. My homework for you is to write some of this out. Even just copy and paste this question that you gave to me. Just change it around. Say, I've been lying to you. I don't know what to do. I'm so sorry. I don't know why I'm doing this. It doesn't have to make perfect sense. It doesn't have to be clear. It. She's not going to be offended. She's going to be more curious about what, what, why this happened. See, and that's where my brain goes. Is I'm like, okay, so you've been lying. I'll just pretend I'm your therapist. So you've been lying to me. Interesting. So you have been self-injuring, but you just don't really know why. So I'd be curious about that. I'd want to dig into that. Do you even remember when you self-injure or is there like hazy, fuzzy memory? Like I'm, I'm going to ask questions about dissociation to figure out if that's why, or do we just not, are we so disconnected that we don't even know our triggers? That's very common too. So that those, and in my mind, as I ask these questions, you guys, what I'm doing is I'm breaking it into like little tasks and things that we need to work on as part of our treatment plan, right? Goal would be stop self-injury. That's a long-term goal. I'm going to work back from that. And one of those goals that I've just stumbled across is I would like to know if dissociation is part of the self-injury ritual because it's what's happening. I also want to know if we know the lead up and what's actually what's going on, what we're experiencing, why we're doing it. Right now, that's a no, but then that would be another thing we want to work on is we want to figure out what our triggers are and what's causing this to happen because there's always a cause. Even if we're like, I don't even know, there's something. We just aren't attached or connected enough to our brain and body to be able to recognize that. So those are already have two kind of bigger key components of our work together that would I, I would focus on for probably a few months here. And so maybe write it down or email it. If you can email it, just like copy and paste this thing and say, hey, I asked this question to you know this, this weird therapist online and she said to send this to you. Here it is. Boom. Don't, you know, don't edit it. Don't worry about it. Just hit send before you can second guess yourself and not do it. We get lied to all the time. There's not going to be any judgment. It's more about the why we're lying. And that would be another thing. So now we have two homeworks and I'm adding in a third with that long-term goal again of being like to stop self-injuring. So this other now, okay. So why the lying? I might even write that in my notes. Why the lying question mark? Is it protective? What kind of defense mechanism? What triggered it? I would have questions about lying in other situations in your life, like with other caretakers. Have you ever lied to your doctor, your mother, your aunt, or your teacher, whatever, you know, just out of curiosity. Um, And then I'd have questions like, okay, so if we are saying that we haven't been using the self-harm, it's because we don't really have the answer as to why. So do you feel like in order to tell me about some of your struggles, you have to know why? Because you don't. That's not your job. That's my job as a therapist. Help us. We're going to figure that out together. I'm going to help guide you and ask some questions. You have the answers. I don't know, but I'm going to try to guide the best of my ability to get you to realize why. Does that make sense? So you don't have to know to bring something up. You don't have to have an answer. We'll ask it, but you just say, I don't know. And that's okay. We'll keep we'll keep working on it. Um, overall, very normal. If you're able to tell your therapist about this, the sooner the better. Um, there's not going to be any judgment or anger. There's going to be seeking to understand. Because the thing that's cool about therapy is everything that we do that we think is like, bad or unhelpful, or I don't know why I'm doing it's incredibly beneficial for the therapist to know because that gives us something to work with, questions to answer, things to, I don't know, to dig into, if that makes sense. And this tells us a lot 
about your process and what's coming up for you. And if I was your therapist, I would really want to know, not because I'd be offended that I'm lied to, because I'm like, wow, there's so much gold here to tell us what to work on next. And she, without this information, might be overlooking it or not even know this is happening. And so, yeah, write it out, email it, do whatever you can to get that out. Give her, hand her a letter when therapy's over, walk out. Well, that's fine too. Any way to let her know that this is happening and you don't know why, okay? And again, it's okay. We get lied to each and every day. We don't take any offense, okay? Let's move on to question number six. This question says, happy Thursday, happy Thursday. I've been diagnosed with CPTSD or complex PTSD because of childhood sexual abuse by my father that happened between the ages of three and nine. My question is, I have little to no memory of the abuse. Sometimes I wonder if my my brain is playing tricks on me and the abuse never happened and I'm just making things up and blaming my dead father for something that never happened. Why would we do that? But there are a few memories and smells that trigger dissociation and other things. Will this question ever be answered? Will I always wonder? Is it possible that I never formed any memories because of the abuse? I hope I'm making sense. You're making complete sense. And trauma memories are complicated. I wish they weren't. I wish there was like a clear, I don't know, clear connections. There were clear explanations. We knew exactly where they were housed in our brain and why. We're still learning, but they're complicated. And first of all, between three and nine, it's very common for us not to form long-term memory, meaning we can recall it when we're little, but as we get older, we can't recall things. And it's, it's usually like around the age of five. So like three, four, five, you might not remember any of that. You might not have ever formed a long-term memory during that time. And obviously five is like this uh, guess. It's around that time. So for some people, they'll have a few memories of like the age of five. Some people doesn't start till six. Do you know what I mean? Some people might have a couple random memories of the age of four, but, uh, but by and large, with the way that humans develop, we do not develop long-term memory until around the age of five. And so those first few years of abuse, I'm not surprised that you don't remember. Your brain just wasn't developed enough to create those memories. Now, moving on to let's say six to nine, so the next three years, it's going to be spotty. Trauma memories are difficult. If we dissociate it a lot, those memories may not exist or they may only exist in like, looks like we're flipping through photos or watching like an old film where, you know, like VHS, this maybe shows my age, but a VHS that's been like rewound and played and rewound and like taped over a bunch starts to get like, right? And you almost can't see it. And the, the white and the black gets all, it's really fuzzy and hazy and you can't maybe make out the faces or what's really going on. I feel like that's trauma memories a lot of times because it's overwhelming to our nervous system. We can be going in and out of dissociation. We're in fight, flight, freeze, right? We're in our stress response, which means that this, like our prefrontal cortex is offline. Memory formation becomes really difficult. We get into this, like, I just have to survive mode. Everything changes, making it more and more difficult for our brain to actually form those memories. However, The fact that you are triggered by certain smells, maybe tastes, uh, places could be all sorts of things. Our senses, like again, it's like that body keeps the score. It still happened to us and our body knows it happened. And those senses are triggering it because it did take place. Now, 
I wish, even though who wants to really remember trauma, but I wish for our own sake, especially to like combat the shame and also be kind of more validating of the experience. I wish that we could remember it because the fact that it is so spotty and weird and we don't remember chunks and then we do makes us question our own sanity. We gaslight ourselves thinking the abuse didn't really happen when it did. Because just think about this. The person who asked this question, consider why would this be something you'd make up? Who wants to think that their father abused them? Who wants that? Who wants to struggle with whatever mental illnesses this has caused in you, right? You said complex PTSD. A lot of my patients with complex PTSD struggle with binge eating or restrict like eating disorder behavior. Um, we can be really hypervigilant and impulsive, right? Why would we want to Why depressive thoughts, suicidal thoughts, self-injury urges, all sorts of things. Why would we want that? It's it's not comfortable. None of us like it. Why would we do that? Memories are just complicated and it is possible that you just didn't form any of them or because they're trauma memories, they're like super spotty at best. But I do find that as we work with our therapist and if there's anybody in your life that was also around when the abuse was going on, you can sometimes they can help us fill in blanks and not specifically about the abuse unless they were there too. But sometimes we can have people say like, yeah, I always remember that pool party that we had at our cousin's house and even triggering those memories of like, like neutral days, perfectly fine days. We're like, oh, and that can spring. Boop. We remember other little bits around that. Sometimes we just need that trigger, that person to like set it off. And then our brain is like, oh yeah, yeah. It's almost like it finds that marble of that day. And it's like, oh yeah, we do have some of that memory. Um, and so talking with people that you knew in those, when you were that age, can be beneficial. If it's going to be re-traumatizing, let's not do that. But that can sometimes help us fill in some of the blanks or get our brain thinking back to that time. But again, it's very common to not remember to have spotty memory or to struggle to recall, you know, chunks of time. Um, It's totally making sense. I wish I had a better answer. But yes, it happened to you. You would not make it up. I know we want to invalidate and we want to shame spiral this out. But hang in there, keep working on it with the right treatment. It will get better. Okay. There was a comment on this as, as an add-on, I also don't have any memories of each instance of abuse and I can't help but wonder what else is hidden. I sometimes think it would be better to remember everything or none of it. Which way would be better in your opinion? I love this question because like there's no, I don't know, part of me feels like because of this struggle with validation, and the minimization that we do when we have abuse, I'd almost rather that everybody remembered it because then at least we would have the like, yes, this happened. It would give us stuff to work on. We could easily, not easily, because it's not easy, but it'd be easy from the therapist point to set up some exposures to help you work through it safely and you know protecting you from re-traumatization. I'd have to go, I'd have to err on the remembering it all versus none of it. Because I think that none of it is still going to come along. We're still going to have trauma responses. We just won't have any memory of it or understand why. And I think that second guessing is like just an added layer onto that, you know, complex PTSD or PTSD-like response. And I've always, I've never had a patient feel good about that, if that makes sense. It's always just, it's so complicated and just distressing. There was another add-on that said, I have a similar experience. I started therapy some years ago, and as my therapy sessions went by, I became really triggered around my father. 
I had no memories of him sexually abusing me, only him being inappropriate sometimes. When I lived at home, he also had a really, really abrupt mood swings. And I, and I had to sleep with him in my room for years, all of my childhood, because my mom couldn't stand his snoring. During those first months of therapy, I spent a lot of time with my dad because during that period, I worked with him in the family business and my mental health deteriorated really badly. I even dissociated when I had to spend time alone with him in the office. And although we got along really well, the very idea of being alone with him caused me enormous anguish. He was super nice to me, but it made it even worse. I felt really uncomfortable when he touched me or hugged me. Soon he started comparing me with my mom, offering to buy me expensive things, inviting me to restaurants, just the two of us, asking me not to tell my mom. He bought me clothes that he wanted me to wear to work and constantly made comments about my looks and how lucky my husband is. My therapist said that the reason why I felt so anguished was because, in her opinion, there were clearly some signs of sexual abuse. Yes, but I don't have clear memories about it. I feel that I'm either crazy or terrible or a terrible and ungrateful daughter. How can I get triggered so badly for things that I don't even remember clearly? Because your brain remembers, your body remembers, we have cellular memory. So even if we can't recall these memories in, you know, story form clearly, like this just happened yesterday, we can feel it. And you're having like a physiological response to trauma that you sustained as a child. And even if, so... I talked about this years ago with a, my friend Paul Gilmartin on my, um, this is a video from, I don't even know you guys, like six years ago, seven years ago. Love Paul. Great guy. He had some, what I would call like covert sexual abuse by his mother. And he talks about how she like would want to bathe him. And he was like 12 or 13, I think. It's just too, like a mother doesn't bathe her teenage son. That That's not appropriate. Right. And so there were things and he says he remembers not wanting to take his shorts off, like, you know, wanting to wear a swimsuit. And I think it's things like that that happened and possibly there was, you know, other types of sexual abuse, but possibly it was this covert, not so overtly sexual things. Like even the comments your dad's making is like, it would, if, even if he, if I worked at that office, he wasn't my father and I was you and he like wanted to buy me clothes and told me how lucky my husband is that that's not appropriate. That's like sexual misconduct at work, Right that's not okay. And so I know that we think, oh, but he's my dad and he was good. And it's kind of that like covert nature of it that can be like a mind fuck, but it also might've happened in other ways and we just don't remember. And so the fact that you're getting triggered so badly leads me to believe that there was sexual abuse at the home when you were a child and the way that he's treating you now is not okay, but it's also indicative of, you know, what's happened in the past I'm so sorry you went through this. Um, a great book for you would be the Courage to Heal workbook. I think that that might be really beneficial. And we get triggered for things we don't remember because our body and our brain remember, even though we can't quite recall those memories, if that makes sense. And so again, kind of going back to the the first part of the question where the person was saying like, you know, certain scents will remind me of things. It's same for you. Being around him, being alone with him, you know it's dangerous. Your your nervous system knows that's not safe for you. It recalls other times when you were harmed. You maybe don't because it's protective. You probably just dissociate it. But your your body doesn't forget. It's like, I remember what happened to me and this isn't okay. And so you get very nervous, very anxious, very uncomfortable. And like you said, you shouldn't feel complete anguish when you're alone with him. That's indicative of child abuse. And so not having clear memories doesn't mean it didn't happen, unfortunately.
Okay, let's move on to question number seven. It says, moin, fellow humans, moin. If you don't know moin is uh, in Germany, when we went to visit our friend Jürgen, people would say moin, like good morning, kind of like moin. I love it. I know you talked about something similar already, but I'm unsure why I am jealous of people who got raped. I feel like that would be the only way that I have the right to feel as bad as I do. Or I wish that my father broke a bone when he hit me so that it's not just me being dramatic. Hmm. I'm super scared of him and people don't understand that that because he stopped hitting me a while ago. When someone stops doing something to us, it doesn't mean that we all of a sudden forget what they did. I know the old adage is like, forgive and forget, but like we can't force forget, right? We can work to forgive, but that doesn't mean that we can forget. And our nervous system doesn't forget, right? If it was traumatic and overwhelming to you, you're going to have like a visceral response. Like if you ever had to like engage back in a, what I would call like an abusive relationship, whether it was a friendship, a parent, a whatever, it's like, everything in your body wants to get the fuck out of there. Like you don't want to be around this person. You don't want to talk to this person. You can just feel it. Like I've had to do that before. And I feel like, like sweaty, like, ugh. I just, and every, I just super anxious. And it was exhausting after I'd spent time with this person. I was just like, ugh. and that wasn't even like, you know, I wasn't hit by my father. This was like a bad friendship. And so you're not being dramatic. Worse, you, it's interesting how invalidating you are to yourself. But let's continue with this question. I am super scared of him and people don't understand because he stopped hitting me a while ago, but I'm not able to move when I sit next to him. And when something reminds me of him, I get a panic attack. But it only happens somewhere. If, oh, it only happens only if it happens somewhere where I think I am safe. Sorry, I had trouble with that sentence for some reason. Around him, I don't freak out as much. This feels way too bad. Something that wasn't so bad in the end. Was it not so bad in the end? I am physically fine. How do I stop minimizing? Here we go. How do I stop minimizing all that happened to me? And how do I stop wishing for something really bad to happen to me? I think we have to notice. I mean, obviously working with a trauma therapist would be ideal. But I think part of this for you is going to be noticing when you talk down to yourself and minimize what took place. Like you're doing it in this question all over the place. And I'd assume people in your life are doing it too. Become aware of this. Notice the conversation you have with yourself about this abuse. And I encourage you to write down a couple of these common thoughts. Like one of your common thoughts I'd assume is, you know, I'm jealous of people who have it worse. I wish I had a, a bone broken. Um, I don't know. I, I wish he was still hitting me. I don't know what you think about it, but I'm, let's write some of those thoughts down. And then I want you to argue back with something neutral. So a neutral thought could be, you know, um, I'm open to believing that what did happen wasn't good. I do agree that I was physically hit and abused. I'm open to calling this abuse or something, you know, we can kind of get in that space of like, it's possible that what I went through was bad or it wasn't good or was hurtful or could have been hurtful, right? We can live in these coulds, woulds, maybes, possibilities. Let's try to make it into these neutral statements. Yes, with the the goal of it, like, yeah, it was fucking bad. Your your father hit you. That's not okay. Just because he stopped doesn't mean that the pain is gone and the PTSD isn't still there. You were abused. But we can't, sometimes we can't absorb that. We can't hear that. We don't believe that. Even as I say it to you right now, you're probably like, nope. So we need some more like bridge statement type thoughts. 
And we need to argue against these ones that we're having because they're not helpful. They're minimizing, they're invalidating, they're hurting us. They're perpetuating our trauma, right? Because every time we have a trauma response and our brain says, shut the fuck up, you're making this into a bigger deal, then we are re-traumatized again, right? And so it's just building. It's just making our trauma responses, probably our hypervigilance is getting even worse. And so start, I mean, trauma therapy is ideal. And then start working on those thoughts and working on ways to be a little bit kinder, just neutral towards yourself, especially in regards to the situation. Okay. Now there was a comment that says, as an add-on, I kind of feel jealous about people who were actually hit by their parents. See, so this person thinks what happened to you was worse. Isn't this fascinating how we always think that what happened to us isn't bad enough to warrant PTSD or trauma response or eating disorder, depression, suicide, whatever it is. It's like, oh, it's never bad enough. I want you to remember that. Everybody out there, remember that. Everyone feels like what they went through wasn't bad enough. They're making it into a bigger deal. I'm so over, I'm just overreacting. I'm so dramatic. Everybody feels that way. Everybody deserves to feel how they feel and be validated for the trauma, big T, little T, whatever that they sustained. We, we're doing the best we can. And the minimization is actually, pat yourself on the back, this urge to minimize and invalidate is is kind of how we survived, right? If we tell ourselves, it's not that bad, it's not that bad, it's not, I can do this, oh, well, shake it off, move forward, right? Then we just go through our life and push through and survive, right? We're resilient, we make it. But we get to a point where we're, we're going to be acting out of those old patterns, acting out of the trauma, right? And essentially like what we call the cycle of trauma. Um, if we have children, we can act in a way to them that will cause them to have PTSD-like symptoms. It's called transgenerational trauma um, because we pass on our behaviors, right? And so I don't, I'm not saying that to, to make any of you worry or be concerned about that. I'm just saying that, you know, pat yourself on the back because all of this minimization helped us survive and get through it. But now it's getting in our way. It's fucking our shit up. It's making us freak out and we feel out of control and there's triggers we don't know about and our world could be getting smaller because so much of it's triggering. Sometimes what we need is just to work and fight back to accept and validate that we were abused, that what happened to us was harmful and we don't like it and we want it to stop and we wish it never happened and we don't want to have this response anymore. And, you know, some of that like inner child work, especially if this happened to us when we were a kid, talking to a little us and saying, I hate that this is happening to you. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, I will fix it. We will make this better. You know, and then we go to therapy and we do the, the hard work to make it better. Um, okay. So, I'm going to continue with this person's questions. Remember, it's an add-on. It says, I kind of feel jealous about people who were actually hit by their parents. In my house, I was the oldest sister, did well at school, and never broke any rules. My mom always said that I never behaved as a real child. For her, I was always like a small grown-up. I was hit a few times when I was little, but my siblings got it a lot worse because they behaved like normal children. They were hit with belts, broomsticks, and slapped on their face so hard that the marks lasted for days. My dad always claims that he barely touched me, but I lived in constant fear, silence, and always trying to read his mind to walk in on eggshells, right? Read his mind in order to not upset him. I also lived with a feeling of permanent anguish because I was not able to defend my younger siblings. How can I overcome this feeling of shame and cowardice for having been the lucky one? Now, first of all, I'm so sorry. You still lived in a traumatizing situation. Think of back, I've talked about this, you know, time and time again, but I think it's important to reiterate it here. To be traumatized, we have to fear for the safety of ourselves or those we love. 
In this case, in your scenario, it was both. There were times when you were abused. However, you lived in constant fear and watched your siblings, those that you love, get harmed day in and day out. And that is incredibly traumatizing. Now, obviously, it's almost like you have survivor's guilt a little bit where you're like, why did they have to go through it so much worse than me? And I would argue you all had it bad. It's almost like comparing broken legs. Your legs are both broken and both fucking sucks and nobody wanted that to happen. And it was none of your faults, right? It was your parents' fault. They were bad parents. They were abusive. And frankly, I believe they deserve to be in prison, but that's just me. And your dad claiming he barely touched you. I don't fucking care. You were an, you were an abuser. Like, oh, good for you. You bar- What? Does he want a fucking uh, pat on the back of blue ribbon? Shut the fuck up. Um, and so... Sorry, I just get really I to hurt a ch- to harm a child or to harm an animal. I just there's a special place in hell for those people. Um, so getting over the feeling of shame and cowardice, there's going to have to be a lot of inner child work. I am going to do an inner child workshop, hopefully like next month. I think it should be ready. I'm working on it now, but it might be like June or July. Um, but I think there's going to have to be some conversations, and maybe these are letters. Maybe this is just talking to your inner child in in therapy. If you're doing trauma work, I hope you are finding a therapist who specializes in trauma or is at least trauma informed. I don't know what you have access to in your area, but finding someone that you connect with where you can talk about this is going to be incredibly healing. There's going to have to be a lot of conversations with little you because part of me feels like there's some healing and validation in like taking yourself back to one of those scenarios where you watched your siblings get abused and you yourself were not touched because I think you forget how traumatizing that was and how scary that was. Now, yes, they got hit, but that doesn't mean that the wounds, the emotional wounds aren't there for you. And also you, I'm sure you struggle with walking on eggshells now and trying to read everybody's mood and that's exhausting. And also not to mention perfectionism. I mean, I have a lot of eating disorder patients who've had situations like this where it's like, just have to be perfect. Keep it all together, right? Um, because if you didn't, you're afraid you'd get hurt, right? This is like no greater fear. So I think those conversations with younger you are going to uncover a lot. And if you have photos of you at a young age, or if you can actually take yourself back safely, again, we don't want to be re-traumatized. So we want to make sure we have some coping skills on board. These could be things like uh, going to a safe place in our head, or, or it could be like the full body shakes and things like that. It could be... Um, I don't know, uh, mantras or having a, a, a thing with us, like a, a, I had a patient who used to carry a stuffed animal or a silly putty or something to keep you busy and keep you here. Grounding techniques can be helpful. Whatever kind of helps soothe your system. You can check out my coping skills video and, and pull some and see what works, but get those on board so that when you go back into that space and you talk to you at, let's say the age of nine or whatever, that you um, that you're okay and that we're not re-traumatizing you because um, you weren't a coward nothing was wrong with you. You unfortunately uh, did the like, uh, what do they call it? It's like, it's not, it's not really a defense mechanism, but it's like when we, we like rise above, it's not resilience even. I'm going to forget the word. It's okay. But it's like, essentially when we take a shitty situation and we, we put all our energy into like rising above it to ensure it doesn't happen to us again. Um, it all come to me anyway because you you did that that doesn't that was just your coping your siblings were regular kids and did not act in those ways you know we all cope in the best way that we can we all have different defense mechanisms um 
Yeah. So you weren't really the lucky one and they weren't lucky either. You all were unlucky. You all had abusive parents and take some time to heal from that. My dog is looking at me. Hi, Roxy girl. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. And question number eight is, I think it's sublimation, by the way. I'm going to double check myself, but I thought the word that I was looking for just then, I think it's sublimation. Um, yeah. Yes, we it's a type of defense mechanism when unacceptable urges are transformed into more productive or acceptable behavior. So it'd be like you wanting to be a, a child and be goofy and, you know, maybe even be mad at your parents, but instead you like put all your effort into like getting really good at sports or school or whatever. <clears throat> okay. Question number eight. Hi, Katie. Thanks for all you do. Of course. Says my question is, do therapists only validate experiences when they think it's an issue? Or do they sometimes just validate to make you feel better about it? My therapist told me that I'd experienced trauma during a medical procedure, painful and felt I didn't have control, plus some issues with consent. Now I get flashbacks and now experience a lot of anxiety around medical professionals, settings, etc. Other people in my life seem to think it's not a big deal and that I'm just being too sensitive. People have horrible medical experiences all the time in the UK and they just move on from it. That's not okay. I'm wondering if my therapist is saying it was traumatic just to make me feel better so that I don't feel like I'm being dramatic. I'm not sure if I'm overreacting or if this has really been a traumatic experience. What a great question. And the truth is, no, therapists do not only validate experiences when they think it's an issue or to make their patients feel better. We all need validation for what we've experienced and what we're going through. And the truth is, if we're going through it and if we feel it, if that's what our experience is, that's what our experience is. There's no like, we're not making it up. It's not like I would want to be traumatized and that that would feel good. Like I would seek that out. Yes, I know there's like Munchausen, people pretend to be sick in order to get care and support and stuff. And there there are those components to it. Like we talked about earlier, like attachment with a therapist, but that still doesn't negate how we feel and why this is going on, right? It's still important in therapy to feel that however we're thinking, feeling, experiencing life is validated. It's okay. It's kind of part of that holding environment. Like, so that you feel safe enough to like dump all your shit there. And I, as your therapist can like contain it and hold it and be like, it's okay. It's not too much for me because oftentimes when we're struggling, we could think I'm just too much. I'm overreacting. This is just, I don't know, making it into a bigger deal than it is. And we have all these thoughts and feelings about all these thoughts and feelings I feel like it's going to drown us to be able to dump that into our therapy appointments, just blah, 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 get it out, right? And to know that it's okay and it can be held, I think is really healing. And so validation from a therapist is truly because we need it as humans. And often when we're struggling with mental illness, we've been invalidated our entire lives. Like the person who asked this question, you know, people have said you're being too sensitive and it's not that big of a deal. Maybe it wasn't a big of a deal to them, but they didn't experience it, right? So they should shut the fuck up because it's not their experience. Good for you. You've had medical trauma too and you end up not coming out of it with PTSD. I wasn't so lucky. I didn't have as much resilience as you. Everybody's different. Everyone's, I'm sorry that this is, ha- I hate that this is happening in the UK. I hate when people feel like, you know, it's painful and don't have control. Medical trauma, ugh, I'm so sorry. But you're not overreacting you're not being dramatic. Your experience is yours and no one else can tell you that it's different. And I think that's that's why therapists validate is because so often in life, we are minimized and invalidated and it's incredibly healing to have someone hear us 
actually listen to what took place, acknowledge our pain and validate our experience. That's just healing. That's just part of what we all need. I don't think any of us would say, you know, what's really helpful. So people tell me that I'm overreacting and I'm being too dramatic. That really helps. No, that's bullshit. That's assholery. That's someone putting us down, holding us back and telling us that our experience isn't true. And that's gaslighting something, you know, that can, it's not, it's not healthy. Okay. Now there was a comment on this said, would you ever lie to a patient? In what circumstances would you tell your patient something, even though you don't believe it? I recently asked my therapist if it was emotional abuse that I experienced and she didn't really answer it directly. She replied something like, I believe you've had some bad things happen to you. Then she was more curious about where this question comes from. Oh, interesting. I can tell you about that. I was wondering if a therapist is trained to not answer the patient's question and to change topics if he or she disagrees. No, we're not trained to do that at all. We're actually trained not to give you, sometimes we don't give you answers because we want you to find them yourselves. I know that's infuriating. I would hate that answer too, but it's the truth. And here's why. If your therapist had said, yes, it was emotional abuse, would you have been satisfied? Would you have been like, yep, it is. I knew it was. Fuck, I thought it was. Damn it, it did. And you like accept it and you like validate your experiences from here on out and call it emotional abuse and don't minimize it? Most likely not. Maybe for some, that's all we need. Now, she, what she's trying to do is to get you to accept that that's what ha- what happened and not be the one to try to give it to you. Because the thing that's funny about being a therapist is what other people would assume are like simple questions or like, well, you should just say, yes, it was. And you're like, no, because that's not really what's the problem here. The problem is that you don't believe it and you're looking for outside validation for something that I want you to learn to have internal validation for, right? Now, they're, depending on the patient, depending on the situation, I might say, yes, it was emotional abuse. And how does it feel for you to hear me say that? You know, again, it's more about you. It's not about what I think. And I know there is a part of you that's like, but they're the professional and I want them to say that it is. She might at some point, but she's wanting you to come around to it first. Because again, it's like we can hear it from people day in and day out. I've told how many of you that what you sustained was abuse, assault, whatever it was. And how many of you actually heard me and don't still second guess it? Probably like 99% of you still second guess it. Oh, I know. I, I didn't, I didn't explain that right to Katie. She, I made it into a bigger deal. I used language I shouldn't have, right? Da, 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 da. We, we still don't believe it inside. And that's what your therapist is trying to push you to do. So no, we don't lie to our patients. We just challenge you to, instead of leaning on us for all of the I don't, not even just validation, but for all of the acceptance, we want to push it back to you so that you can offer that acceptance to yourself. And that's really the hard work. So your therapist is doing a good job. She's not just making it easy for you, even though it's not easy. Even if she said it was emotional abuse, I don't think that would have changed how you felt. And you might even ask her again later, or is she sure? You know, so she's wanting you to validate it yourself. And that's why she's curious where that question comes from. Like, why are you asking me? don't you know what it is, right? So back on to you. Um, She's not going to say it that directly, but that's essentially what she's trying to do. And I hope that makes sense. Our final question, question number nine says, can you choose radical acceptance and yet still be mad? Now, if you don't know, radical acceptance is one of these tools that we use within dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. And it's when something shitty happens or a lot of things are out of our control, right? 
we choose radical acceptance, meaning, well, there's nothing I can do to change this. I can't, it, this, that happened. And we like radically accept it. It's just like it sounds instead of fighting against it and pushing back and allowing ourselves to like emotionally overcharge and like be impulsive and then react. We radically accept it and try to move forward. Um, it is difficult. Like I'm talking about it very simply. It's difficult, but you can do it. Now, let me get in through the rest of this question. So can you choose radical acceptance and yet still be mad? I was recently diagnosed with ADHD. I have a lot of mixed emotions after learning about my diagnosis. I'm glad to know this now, but my younger self is enraged, essentially being punished because my brain is wired differently. I've accepted that I cannot change the past, but I feel the need to go and see every person with whom I interacted with growing up and tell them I have ADHD and not just I'm not just a screwed up kid. Of course, if I did, I'm sure the first thing they would say is, who are you? <laughs> it's true. But that's that's what your urge is, right? Because there, okay, I have a couple of thoughts about this. I don't think radical acceptance is, is going to work for you here. And here's why. It's not that radical acceptance isn't helpful in the moment, but when it comes to like a life-changing diagnosis, which we could argue all diagnoses are life-changing, but in your case, we have a lot of these false beliefs around who we are, what we're capable of, right? A lot of my patients and even my friends with ADHD grew up thinking they were stupid, lazy, fucked up, something was wrong. I don't learn like other people learn. Like you get a lot of judgments. Even one of my friends who's on YouTube and doing well now was in like the special ed program for a while because he struggled so much with focus. And I'm like, Ugh, our system's so messed up, right? Work with, not against brains. And just because someone's brain works differently doesn't mean they have to, you know. Anyways, long story short, I don't think radical acceptance is going to work here. I think what we're going to need is we're going to need to throw some tantrums, allow younger you to be mad, fucking rage, write some nasty letters to people who said, not that we're going to send, but, or if you want to send them, you totally can. That's up to you. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to get this out. Let little you be mad. You had so much trouble growing up and you have a right to be angry because really anger is secondary emotion, right? What are we feeling? Probably some hurt, some judgment and sadness over like lost childhood stuff, things that you want to be a part of. I don't know what'll come up for you. Grieving also, right? Let yourself throw those tantrums, write those letters and express all that you never were able to. And then you might even want to do some inner child work where you write some like compassionate letters or just think them out in your head to younger you. Like, you know, I know, I know little Katie, you're having a tough time and you're thinking that you're stupid and you're thinking that you're lazy and school's so hard for you, but just know that it's not you. It's your brain works differently and people are too stupid to realize that right now. But know that when you get older, it's different and you you get answers and, and you're doing okay. You know, I don't know. I don't know what little you needs to hear, that you're loved, that you're enough, that you're smart, that, that you're unique, that you're important. I don't know. But maybe we could offer those things to our younger self. And again, allow younger you to throw a tantrum. It's okay to be angry. You have every right to. And that's, I just don't think radical acceptance works. At some point it will, but I feel like you owe it to your to yourself and to younger you to at least let some of this out. Otherwise, radical acceptance is kind of tricky this way. I struggle with this with some of my patients over the years. Is like, I don't want radical acceptance to be a way or an excuse to like stuff things down and repress what you're going through. And I feel like that might be what's happening here a little bit. And so I want you to allow for that tantrum, allow yourself to throw a fit because then 
We can learn about our diagnosis. We can learn how to work with, not against our brain. We can like lean into some of the self-acceptance and things that are important to us. And then we can radically accept, then we can move into it. Um, I hope that that helps. I hope that kind of clears that up. And yeah, and there's a part of, a part of you, that's why you want to go back and see the other kids and be like, I'm not, I have ADHD, I'm not just a screwed up kid, because we need that validation, we need that support, we want them to know that something's not wrong with us. And that is all coming from the fact that we believed for a long time something was wrong with us. And so allow yourself an opportunity to get pissed off about that, because I would feel that way too. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much for all of your questions. I hope that the answers were beneficial for you. I hope they helped you feel a little bit more heard and understood. And again, that validation, because that's so important. Um, Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always